I think we're going to war for real. I'll tell you one little story that I probably have never told anybody before. We got hit with a NVA sapper company supported by infantry. It's not easy and no, that one was tough, but fortunately it worked out for us. Welcome to War Stories, conversational military history. A quick note before we get into today's episode. Sayer and I are working on growing the show to make it a better and better product for all listeners. And one way we're doing that is through Patreon. War Stories patrons get early access to all episodes, patron-only shows, and some behind-the-scenes access as we plan out future episodes and guests. If interested in supporting us directly, the link to do so is in the episode description, or you can head to our website, warstories.co. And as always, thank you all so, so much for your continued support. What's going on, everyone? Preston Stewart and Sayer Payne, joined today by Nick Laidlaw. Nick, thanks so much for taking the time, man. Yeah, no, no problem. Thanks for having me. So you, uh, you do a lot of things, and I was trying to think of how to best introduce you, and I think the best way to do it is to ask you. How do you introduce yourself? What do you kind of lead with? What I like to say is I am an internet carrier pigeon. That's how I describe what I do. Oh, that's better than anything I would have come up with. That is very good. So basically what I do is I find and locate people who are witnesses and participants of current and past conflicts. I write down what they say and I just pass it on unbiased, unaltered back to my community. That is so much deeper than anything I would have come up with. So you're, you're talking about, uh, I would have probably started with a book, maybe. Um, you've done this in a book form. You've done it on, yep. on a lot on Instagram, I've seen. Um, so primarily it's the, the Instagram. And then the, the book was, the first book was something I was cyberbullied basically into doing by the community. They're like, you gotta, you gotta put this into a book, man. And I just got so many messages and comments about it that I just caved and did it. And, uh, I'm actually about in a day or two about to publish my second one. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. That's gotta be a good motivator having yeah, an audience like already sort of pushing you down mm-hmm. that road, which is hard. I'm sure. Yeah, it definitely is. Uh, the following is definitely what keeps me doing it. Uh, I spend virtually every free minute of my time doing battles and beer stuff. And so, uh, it gets to be a lot sometimes, especially in this, like the war in Ukraine, I get so emotionally invested uh, with the soldiers who were there because oftentimes they're texting me or messaging me from the exact same battlefield that they had fought on just an hour before that. Like the Azovstal guys, yep. they were messaging me while the siege was going on. And there were a lot of cases where I'd message a guy and he would never come back online. And then I'd find another soldier who's there and they'd be like, yep, he, he's dead. Mm, and it, it, was, it was very emotionally taxing that, that period of uh, the war for me. But yeah, in, in a nutshell, that's basically what I do. Are you, are you reaching out to these people or are they reaching out to you? What's that not specific to Ukraine, but for all of these firsthand accounts? So originally it started where I would just read a book, like uh, I got a copy of Adam Akos's Spearhead right here. I would just read this book and I would put little sticky notes in wherever I thought was interesting, like a firsthand perspective, especially like Eugene Sledge's book. I used uh, with the old read a lot. I would upload it on Instagram and on Facebook and 
people in the comments started commenting their own experiences that related to that. And so I thought, well, there's a whole ton of stories out there that are not written down. And especially with the World War II and Korea generation, their stories aren't written down. And they're unfortunately passing away at a rate that it's extremely depressing to think about. And I wanted to get as many stories as I could written down. And so at first I started seeking these people out. So I'd go on YouTube comment sections and creep around in there for like, oh, my grandpa fought at Guadalcanal. This is what he said. And Reddit was a good place. There's a whole bunch of people mm -hmm. in dark parts of the internet who have been in these weird, obscure wars all over the planet. And at first it was me seeking them out. And then my girlfriend made, had this great idea where I would make sort of like wanted posters. And so I took the old Uncle Sam poster and a whole bunch of World War I and World War II recruiting posters. Yeah. And I just altered them in a little bit. So it's like B&B &B wants your story, like reach out sort of thing. And that, that helped tremendously. After I started doing those wanted posters, I got a ton of feedback from it. And a lot of veterans started finding me. And especially now in Ukraine, almost every single one is referred to me by someone I have already previously interviewed or like they say like, Hey, I saw your flyer on your story. I'm a Ukrainian soldier. Or I'm a Western volunteer sort of thing. So it, it started out where I was seeking them out, but now my platform has gotten large enough where they trickle in towards me and it's made my life a billion times easier. And this is Instagram, how your sort of community is is that where it's built upon? Primarily Instagram. It was on Facebook. Uh, Facebook, I had like 80,000 followers, but they shut that down. They did not enjoy the perspectives of certain. Oh, interesting. Certain people in history. So now it's primarily Instagram. Random. We've, we do a little bit of advertising on Facebook for the podcast and it's like 50% of the ads get declined. Yeah. And it's not swearing. They decline things and say that it's like what was it the other day hate speech well political yeah but it was something like the quote was like afghanistan has been a battleground afghanistan has been a battleground of empires for generations <laughs> like that's a political that's political speech <laughs> and they ripped it down so I, I appealed it and it said do you want a manual appeal right and i said yeah, yeah i'd like a manual appeal on that and like seven seconds later it said well we manually appealed it <laughs> we manually reviewed it still declined like, I, yeah oh really i don't, yeah, think, so I don't I think you actually part. looked at that one yeah, Facebook is a tough platform to do anything related to the military on. Interesting. I, I haven't dabbled there much, to be honest. Yeah, I, I've, I've more or less given up. I post to Facebook just as a courtesy for the, for the following who is, who've been following me there for years. How do you sift through, because Sayer and I talked about this a little bit for a while, was that idea of just throwing a line out there, throwing a net out. Because you're talking about World War II and Korea veterans. You're, you're right. They're falling off. Um, dude, a lot of GWAT veterans aren't telling their story either, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of crazy ones out there. And they're in their 20s and 30s and yep. uh, still could very well, not, not just tell the story, but get pictures and videos and crazy stuff that nobody's ever seen. So we've thought about throwing the net out there a couple of times, but you get everything. You get some people that aren't telling the truth. That'd oh, be yeah. hard. And, and some people... I don't know. Um, that might not, it might be very, very challenging to get to communicate maybe is the way to put it. How do you sift through that? So it's, it's definitely a process. I've been doing it enough now where I find that the most, because with any, with any war story, even with a citation, 
I don't believe that a single one that we've ever heard is a hundred percent true. Sure. Yeah. There's always stuff that is embellished. It's taken out. St- details have changed. I mean, even the same story told by two different people is not going to be the same story. And so that's one of the things with B and B that I do um, just to kind of cover my own butt is to just put a disclaimer out there saying, Hey, like this, I wasn't there. No one here was there. Like we take everything you read with a grain of salt sort of thing. It's like, I personally, the ones that I publish, I choose to believe them. And I put that in my book where it's like, I'm not a professional historian. I'm not a professional author. These stories, the vast majority of them are definitely probably mostly true, but there's probably some in there that slipped through that are mostly untrue, but you know, that's kind of up to the reader to decide whether or not they want to believe it. And then some of them, like you can tell when you're reading that are just too Hollywood. It's like, yeah, okay. But you're, 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 you're a Marine. So like, you've got at least a little bit of a screen there to when somebody says I was a Delta force Navy seal, a 10 pilot. You're like, well, I don't know. Maybe that wasn't. Typically I try to just find the regular old Joe, you know, like the regular rifleman, because like we've got plenty of books and stories about Navy SEALs and Green Berets and stuff. And their jobs are cool. Don't get me wrong. They're really cool. Sure. But like as a former 0311, I just want to hear stories about other riflemen, like the guys mm-hmm. who were living in the dirt day in, day out, and their stories don't get told. Like they don't get movies. Like what was the last movie you saw about a regular rifleman? you know, except for uh, Outpost. But even then, that was about, like, above and beyond. A Medal of Honor. There were two Medal, Medal of Honors in Astro. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, no, but, they were, but, yeah. they were, but they were just standard. I think you pissed somebody off at that. I think those were Cab Scouts, <laughs> not infantrymen. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> I'm not in the Army. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, but we'll say Grunt. Mm-hmm. You know, that's an appropriate word. And I agree with you. I mean, because there's nothing sexy. I just think about like the guys in my platoon, man, what a brutal life. And I think it would be, I, I think in a way it's easier to be if you're in a 75th or SF because you have every, you're like a professional athlete at that level. Yeah. And you have so many people rooting for your success and, and working hard to uh, keep you fit, keep you healthy, just keep you really at your A game at all times. And if you can't cut the mustard at all, you're gone. I mean, as a leader, there, I mean, there's no like, I mean, there's development of people all the time, but when you're in like the regular old army with grunts, uh, you got people that don't belong, that maybe they were tricked into being there by their recruiter, (laughs) that it's a surge and standards are low and it's needs of the army type stuff. And, but the thing is you're all together and y'all got to deal with it. And, um, but man, the workload of a 12 month deployment too, right? They're doing, at least for the, on the army side, they're doing 12. You guys are doing six. Uh, I think that's what Green Berets do is six. And then, you know, the Rangers go in for like three months, which is, you know, it's every night. But there's a difference, I would think, with doing every night, which would be terrible too, by the way, three months mm-hmm. of that stuff off, on and off all the time, doing really nasty stuff. And then, uh, but then 12 months or even the 15 month, these longer durations where it's more just chronic versus acute, I guess, yeah. stressors maybe is the way, but, um, no, I'm just kind of rambling about totally agreeing with you about telling that story. And I'm just real thankful that you are, because I agree it needs to be told because another thing is like, think of the military as an organization, 
it's that pyramid. We know that, which means that the vast majority get out. And so they've got these experiences of being a grunt, different MOSs, every MOS, every branch has them or the army Marines, whatever, doesn't matter. They've all got them. And you're like the end user doer. And it doesn't get told a lot. And so it's an American story that I think, because I think at the end of the day, we as Americans are all culpable for all of those actions, because we're the ones who sent them, right? If we're going to call ourselves a democracy and everything and, and deploy forces like that, I feel like we all, even if, whether we do it or not, we all should, I think, or we all do have skin in the game as, as American people. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think it's just incredibly important that we get these stories down as fast as we can. Cause you know, there's something like what, like a million GWAT veterans who passed through Afghanistan and Iraq and how many, how many of them have stories written down, you know, mm, like right. think how many books are out there that you, you can think of that are like from the firsthand perspective of combat. Sure. And we're think- probably culpable too, because what probably most of ours are like CIA, you know, those are popular ones and we do them cause we're interested, but it's at really top level like decision-maker stuff, you know, which is totally yeah. different. Yeah, part I, of that... No, go ahead. You know, part of that too, though, is like not everybody can adequately relay their story. And it's not an age thing either. Like most 18-year-olds probably couldn't, in the military, probably can't relay their story as accurately as you'd like. Um, that's something I found interesting talking to Vietnam veterans. They have, they've had time to reflect on the conflict. So they're much more thoughtful in how they describe the whole situation. Not, not as many emotions in a good way. There's still emotion, but not, um, it hasn't, it's not clouding things. If that makes sense. Um, but when you grab a, a platoon or a company or squad or whatever, like there's no guarantee that the guy who has the best story is an effective communicator or ever will be mm-hmm. I feel like that's part of the challenge too. So like that million number is huge, but how many within that group, I, I guess you kind of need somebody like you, Nick, to, to maybe pull that story out at the end of the day. Yep. And that's, that's a big question I get. Um, people will message me and they'll be like, so how do I do this? Like I, I've like a couple months worth of combat experience, but I don't know how to like summarize it or like, And I always tell them, like, what do you think about when you're alone? Like when you're sitting in your room, staring at the wall, like, what are you, what are you thinking about? And that's what I want to know sort of stuff. And I think what's Mm -hmm. unique about my platform and and my series of books is that it's not like pages and pages of stories from one single person. Some of the stories in my books are five sentences long Mm -hmm. and it just be something like I saw a kid step on a landmine and I still think about it to this day sort of thing and I think like even just short stuff like that it's just a little piece of their life that we've like captured now forever and it lives on and I know it does help people uh psychologically especially a lot of the GWAT veterans that I've spoken with uh I've documented their stories and shared them and they said like I've read the comments afterwards and it made me feel a lot better about what I had experienced because like other people had experienced it too sort of thing. And it's like, I didn't think I was that. How do I, how do I describe this? They don't think they are as screwed up as they are told they are, if that makes sense. 
It's because like, oh, sure. people have experienced this too. And it's not just them that it's affecting in such a negative way. Yeah. I mean, I always feel like, am I the crazy one? It's like, you yeah. always want to have that confirmation. Am I the crazy one or are <laughs> other people normal or am I the weird one? I, you know, have you seen a common motif about these sort of core memory? Like, you know, like when you're talking about a, a kid being hurt and something like that, or, 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 um, brother or sister in arms, things like that. Is there any sort of threads or, um, similarities that go across probably generations or wars, things like that. One thing that I've noticed talking to all these people is that, so I'm kind of unique. I talk to both sides. So I have interviewed the Taliban before I've interviewed mm. VA, Viet Cong, the Jap. I've only interviewed one Japanese soldier. Um, they're just incredibly hard to find. I've interviewed a ton of German soldiers uh, Russian soldiers of the Chechen war and Chechens, Russian soldiers now even, and, um, pain. And so I'm going to briefly, uh, quote, uh, what's his name? Dan Carlin is that pain is international. And so a lot of these same sentiments that guys on both sides are saying like what what it felt like to lose your best friend in combat to like hear a man screaming in actual real vivid pain it's the same no matter where you were born and a lot of these guys um they are a lot more similar than they are different no matter where you're from no matter why you're fighting that we're i just i've just sort of realized that we are a lot more similar than we are different Hmm. And they're all people, right? They're, they're all, they're, they're, they're all brothers, sisters, fathers, sons, mm-hmm. friends. They're the, they're the strange one in the group or the popular one in the group. They're the ones with mm-hmm. dreams or the, the bum who hasn't had a dream and ended up in the military. I, I think it is Dan Carlin that made me think more about that. I, growing up, was very much like war was kind of a sport. It's seen on TV, right? Got to yeah. win, um, watch the movies, play video games, stuff like that. And even when we deployed about 10 years ago, it was, it was different because it's, it's right in your face. So there's very much an us versus them. Um, but if I look now at the war in Ukraine, like the overall feeling for me, I'm interested in your take on this now hearing that you've talked to people on both sides is sad. Like I can't rejoice when I see a Russian tank destroyed because that 18 year old driving the tank might've been scared out of his mind for his last 36 hours on earth. Right. And his girlfriend's waiting to hear from him and doesn't understand why he won't text yeah. back. Um, that's awful. It like makes me sick to my stomach, even though it was somebody invading another country. Um, I, you mentioned that the kind of having contacts on the ground has made it an emotional event. Has that, how does that plan to it when you're talking with folks on both sides? Because I imagine the Russian experience is very similar when you're down boots on the ground. Yeah, it's, it's quite difficult for me personally. And it's something I think about pretty, pretty often during the day is it's like, I'm talking to people on both sides and I have, I have friends on both sides of this conflict and, um, you know, there's good and bad on each side of the war everywhere. Yeah, There's like, I've seen an equal amount of videos of the execution of wounded soldiers from Ukrainians and from Russians, you know, Mm. and it's like, oh, it's, it's pretty stressful being like talking to both sides and then trying to stay 
as unbiased as I can, you know, especially when things come up that would usually get someone pretty riled up, like that video recently of the uh, Russian soldier castrating a uh, Ukrainian prisoner of war. And then a few weeks before that, I saw a video of four or five wounded Russians on the road who had been, clearly they had been executed by the Ukrainians. And it's just, it's hard to detach from the war when it's so personal because it's like it's almost like you're witnessing a mini eastern front from world war ii again but except like you're talking to people on both sides like that's like the it's like creeping up slowly to like that level of savagery and barbarity between the two sides and it, it is very difficult to remain unbiased and to stay in the in the neutral zone between the two um i will say i have talked to vastly more ukrainian soldiers than i have russians just because they're just far easier to get a hold of russians are a lot harder to get a hold of and they're a lot more hesitant because they'll find out i'm an american and oh america's put all these sanctions on us and stuff like that you're probably cia yeah yeah i'm probably cia or some other guy and i'll be like i it's, it's a trust building game, you know, and it's, they can take a peek at my website. There's plenty of both, both sides on there, but Instagram does not really, it's not really conducive to sharing the Russian perspective. They're not very appreciative of it. And it's bad for pages health. This stuff gets reported almost immediately taken down. It's very frustrating. I think, I think that's a bad thing. I'm going to interject. I, I know you're frustrated that you can't, can't be up there, but like that doesn't help this mentality of kid Preston Stewart growing up, seeing the war as a game because we don't get to see that scared, lonely 18 year old Russian kid. Like we don't get that experience. We don't get to, to, to experience that the, the drone strike that knocks out a, a, a BMP and kills seven. Like you don't, we're not seeing the tragedy that's on the other side of that. We're only seeing the scoreboard. The yeah. Knocked out tank. I wish, I wish there was more, I actually had for the first time went to a, tried to go to a site the other day in Russia that was blocked. I hadn't had that happen before. The Wagner group mm-hmm. had some recruiting stuff on there. I thought it'd be fun to check out and for educational purposes, yeah. simply to be like, Oh, I wonder what, if I can get that site translated and <laughs> sure enough, blocked, can't, can't access it. Yeah. It's From just, our, no, go ahead. Interesting. I was just going to say that's blocked from you. Like our government's blocking it. I'll look it up right now. I'll tell you in a second what it says. I'm surprised you're talking to Russians because, you know, I'm totally out of this game, by the way. And to think that it's it because to me, I'm just I feel like regular old Joe when it comes to that. So how I feel like it's impossible. There's a firewall between us um, and they're not allowed to kind of like North Korea or kind of like China. They're all in this little bubble that they're not allowed to get out of. But I guess they can. They do have access to the West to the West on the Internet. Yep, they do. They, um, like right before the war, I had almost a little dialogue going between a Ukrainian soldier in the trenches and a Russian soldier just a couple of kilometers away from him. They were communicating to each other through me on Instagram. And once the war started, Putin declared that Instagram was like, I don't know, it was like a it was basically like fake news, like the, like a site where fake news was spread about Russia and he banned it mm. in Russia. 
And so, you know, Russians who had Instagram no longer could communicate on it. And then I don't know what happened, but in the last month or so, a whole bunch of them have been getting back on Instagram and communicating with me. I wouldn't say like a whole bunch, maybe less than a dozen, but still in the last six months, that's a lot for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and if they want to, like, if people want to communicate with other people in, around the world, you can, you can find a way. There are plenty of different apps out there, different uh, methods of communication. Like, you, you can find a way. So that's good to hear. I mean, I'm glad. Mm-hmm. I think the more of that, the better. But the reality, the two 18 year olds on that side have no say in that war. You know what I mean? Neither do you watching it from afar. Um, we're observing it. Yeah, you know? I had, um, <clears throat> I think, a very unique insight to the beginning of the war uh, in terms of the conscripts and stuff like that, right when the war started. <laughs> so I'm friends with a ru- former Russian soldier in the United States, um, and he has a lot of contacts still in Russia, and he was feeding me. He was kind of the middleman between information, so he was talking to them and stuff like that. And then one of his friends actually deserted the Russian army. And just recently, I had documented that guy's entire story of desertion. And that guy, he's 20 something years old, and he didn't want any part of the war. You know, like he said, what saved him was breaking his leg during training uh, on the border. And what why that saved him was because it gave him time to think about what they were doing because he was in the VDV airborne. So it's like their airborne forces drafted. No, he enlisted, you know, enlisted for the same reasons why I enlisted in the Marine Corps. And sure. Sure. I probably enlisted, you know, just it's what men do and it's something important. I think in my life, blah, blah, blah. Like, so he enlisted for the same reasons as I did, but he has family in Ukraine, family in Russia And when he broke his leg, it gave him time to think about what they were doing. Because since they were VDV, they knew about the invasion before it happened, like before it was going to happen. And so it gave him time to think about what they were actually about to do. And then on the flip side of that, I was talking to a conscript just a few days ago, and they didn't know they were invading Ukraine until the night of. They were told they were going to be training. And then the next thing they knew, they were getting shot at by Ukrainian soldiers. They had no idea. And so... Did you say he was a conscript? Yep, he was a conscript. By the way, I've spoken to World War II veterans that said that exact same thing that were paratroopers. Because they were like, I'm going to join the paratroopers because for that same reason, they'll know more information. And, you know, they're going to use conscripts a lot differently. Let's put it that way. Yep, and you can just see from the pictures of the prisoners of war that they capture um, that the conscripts were just sent in just to absorb gunfire and locate enemy positions. Like you can see that they've got like 20 year old rifles and two magazines. You know, do you remember that picture that came out of those two Russian soldiers? They just looked exhausted and they looked. They looked 15, but they were probably 18 and they had no body armor on. They just had like a load bearing vest and each one of them had like two mags. And I remember thinking that's not an invasion force that's prepared. Like these guys were sent here to absorb gunfire. 
I can't find the Wagner group website because it's a blocked website. So I can't like, <laughs> so I can't, so I can't search for it. It was a direct URL I went to and I'm going to dig that up and put that out. But um, I heard a random theory today that I hadn't heard before. And that was that the invasion was decided last minute as in they weren't ready. They weren't prepared. It was going to be kind of a show of force. And then Putin decided because for whatever reasons said, no go. I don't know. I don't know if we'll ever know that for sure. But if that is the case, it kind of lends some credit to the idea of like, they were not ready. They did not have the forces required on the border. They had these conscripts who didn't know until the last minute. I don't know if there's any validity to that, but I would, I would say that sounds very plausible. Like, cause you, I remember thinking like, seeing these like army group movements and like especially now like finding out like the rough troop numbers of the like the the troops who were supposed to take kiev it's like this stuff what were they doing like it doesn't make sense like you think you i don't remember what it was but it was something like ten thousand troops that were pushing in like the army group north is what we'll call them and it's like tens of thousands yeah definitely less than 100 for sure yeah and it's like how are you supposed to take the capital city like with just this small number of troops. It just, it just didn't make sense. To well, me. my theory that doesn't matter is that it's just a giant movement to contact where Putin's like, let's just see what happens. Cross the line. He doesn't care about conscripts. Go back to Call of Duty. Have you ever played the game where you're playing World War II and it's like you you show up with just an ammo clip, right? And then you have to wait on a guy to die. You got to load it. You know, you're, you're gaining your equipment as the people in front of you die. Um, read Zinke Boys. I don't know if you've read that. Um, you probably like it. That's in Afghanistan. That's about their stories, their war stories from Afghanistan, as told to a journalist that she just recorded it. She recorded um, whatever the guy had to say. And then the mm-hmm. widows and the moms, what era whatever they that? had to say, 80s, a million soldiers went through, 100,000 a year. And those guys, guess what? <laughs> they had no clue where they were going until they showed up and they were in country. And that was the first time they even held an AK was in the middle of an ambush. And so to think that these guys are getting qualified and going to the range and how to even, cause it's not like you grow up with a gun in your hand, um, really anywhere. Some people might, but it's not like everybody knows how to shoot guns in, in Russia. So you got to learn how to handle it and everything. And they're literally learning on the fly. So I just kind of feel like it's a movement to contact against kind of the Ukraine, but then more importantly, what's the U.S. going to do? What's it, what's what are the other countries going to do? We'll see. We we'll just keep pushing it. You know, they didn't on movement to contact in um, uh, Crimea. They already did it in a way, mm-hmm. and so it's just that continued escalation to see what happens. If you don't give a damn, I don't know if that's the case, but. It's pushing buttons, obviously, and then getting, it's a weird time to be testing waters, I feel like. Now's the time to test waters, isn't it, in periods like this in the world? Yeah. Nick, you were in Afghanistan, right? Very, very briefly. Well, works for a lead-in. The, the <laughs> person you talked to from the Taliban. What the heck was that like? Yeah. Oh, that was crazy. So it started with the HKIA evacuations. And so HKIA, sorry, the Kabul airport. Oh, okay. Is that the acronym? A year ago. Yeah. Karzai International Airport. Got it. 
And so it, that's where it started was right there. So I, I still have a lot of friends in the Marine Corps, a lot of contacts. And so I was able to communicate directly with a lot of the Marines in 2-1 and 1-8 who were there. Um, so I started documenting their stories like, like right away. And then they started like basically passing their phones to Afghan civilians. And I was getting Afghan civilian uh, interviews basically on the spot. So I started sharing those and uh, then like the Kabul news official Instagram or whatever followed me. And so then after that, like a ton of uh, Afghans started following me and with, with any population of people that starts following me from somewhere, uh, usually you'll get the opposing side within it. And so I know Taliban must've started following me. And then just like any, anyone, you know, like, some lower level Taliban were like, I wouldn't mind like sharing my perspective, you know? And so I talked to two or three of them and it's, it was strange, you know, it was, it was very odd. I will say that most of the ones I've communicated with since the war has ended were not hardcore believers in the ideology. They were just basically normal as normal as normal as like you can be in Afghanistan growing up in an American culture, like as much as you can consider them, their your average Afghan teenager, okay? They just wanted America, NATO out of their country and they saw the Taliban was the best place to do it. And so they became, uh, they became fighters and now that the war is over, they're regular civilians again, just going about what they were doing half a decade ago. Were they, they were they Taliban during the, the prior to the evacuation, or did they kind of jump on board there as that was happening? Some jumped on board as it was happening. Uh, most of them were Taliban prior to. Um, I did speak to a member who was present for the Battle of Marja, and so. I am trying to find a veteran, a Marine veteran of Marja to set up a dialogue between the two of them. Yep. So that, that'll be interesting. That's another big project coming in the future. Um, God. Yeah, it's just. You got me thinking now if I know anyone. I know. Well, I, I, I would love people. that perspective because we, we, you're spot on. You said it earlier. Like it's, it's a one-sided story. And Sayer and I could have been on the same patrol and we're going to tell you a different story from that patrol. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. The yeah. guy that is on the other end of the rounds, like that's an entirely different story, right? Like I can't imagine being able to piece that together. Yeah, it's funny that you say that. Um, at the very beginning of the war, I documented a story from a Ukrainian soldier uh, and he was one of the guys who defended uh, Kharkov. And then just a few weeks ago, I spoke with a Russian company commander level and he was one of the sol Russian soldiers who assaulted Kharkov and they were both in the same ambush. Uh, neither knows that I've talked to the other one, but it's like when they're describing the situation, like, you, you know, this is the exact same ambush that they're talking about. And it's very interesting to get both opposite perspectives of, this, of the same event. So yeah, How it's, did he view, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. He obviously viewed American invaders, uh, did he view Americans and us like as evil? Do you know? Um, yes and no. Again, it depends who you talk to. Like I said, there's good and bad people in every 
conflict. Um, some of them are like, if you come to Afghanistan now, like you're my guest, the war's over. Like I have no hard feelings. I just wanted your soldiers out of our country. Now you're gone and things can be okay. And then other ones I actually ended up having to block because they'd be sending me videos of like IEDs and like, haha, look what we did sort of stuff. Mm, sure. It was, that was crossing the line. Cause it's like, I'm very open to communication, but as soon as it becomes like aggressive, you know, where it's like un- unnecessarily aggressive, like, like, I don't know. You know what I mean? It's just, no time for that, really. Yeah, you just, spend just, it on other people to, that are trying to, to communicate. Yeah, I'm here to yeah. talk and argue. Totally. Communicate. You're here to mm-hmm. communicate without judgment is what it sounds like to me. Yeah. Which Easy. is a rarity. Not- you know, some people get upset that I will talk to the other side. Uh, plenty of Ukrainians have gotten very upset with me for speaking with Russians. And plenty of Americans have gotten very upset with me for speaking to the Taliban. But, you know, it's like... My, my tagline on Battles and Beers is every witness to war has a story and every story deserves to be told. And I firmly believe that. I believe that the American medic at Omaha Beach in 1944 has every right to have his story known as much as the SS death camp guard, you know, and that's going to be a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow, but the human, the collective human experience is, doesn't belong to one specific morality or side. It belongs to everyone. And I think that everyone should have a platform to speak on. And that is what I'm trying to do with BNB. Do you ever find, you read my mind, by the way, I was getting ready to ask that exact question. I figure your core audience, the people that just are all in are there because you have those conversations, but there's no way you're not pissing people off. Um, Yeah. Happen. Yep. The the core OG audience, they get it, you know. And then there's always the outliers who are unhappy with something. And you know, I just scroll past those comments. I don't even pay attention to them. Do you ever feel like you're gonna go to like this is me projecting? This is how I feel that I would be in your shoes. Do you ever feel like you're gonna go down a rabbit hole when you start talking with folks from the other side, whether it's Viet Cong, um, Germans or Japanese in World War II, Taliban? Russian soldiers, the, the other side from what we normally get. I feel like if I started down that path, like really getting good information, I'd be gone, checked out. Like yeah, too deep. It's, it's interesting because like you only get our perspective in movies and books. And then it's like, you finally get exposed to the other side. And it's like, it's almost, it's kind of addicting where it's yeah. like, you want to, you want to know more about like, because I think that why people find military history so interesting is not because of like the guns or the explosions or the battles. I think it's the psychology. Like why, like what was it like to live through this? Or like, why did these people make these decisions? Like, at least for me, that is what drives these interviews is like the, the psychology of what was it like? Like why? And speaking to the other side is definitely can slip down some rabbit holes sometimes. And, and like what I mean by that is not the conspiratorial, uh, the truth has been twisted necessarily, but we do have one we're seeing as Americans are seeing the American side. So like in world war II, I'd be very interested to hear like from the average soldier, this Holocaust thing, did you guys just ignore it? Was it something you talked about? Did your families know about it? Did you understand like, how did that play in? 
how did it play in that your, your cities and everybody's being bombed from pretty early on in the war? What was that like on the Viet Cong? Um, how did you know when the Americans were coming? How could you set booby traps that wouldn't hit your villagers, but would hit the Americans? Like, how did you, like, we don't, we just don't, it's not that those are hidden or removed from our stories. It's just not a part of mm-hmm. ours. So we don't hear it. I'm curious yeah. in all those questions. It's the same thing. <laughs> I don't know the answers there. Uh, no, they're important questions. And to me, it's all about I don't know, being uh, either what's called, we'll call it a pawn or being victimized by your government. Because to me, the question is, what brought that person there on those on that ground? Mm-hmm. Like, how did mm-hmm. they find themselves there? Yeah, like, I will we, quote Dan Carlin one more time. And it is sometimes the evil henchman and the helpless victim are often the same man. Mm-hmm. Say it again. And Sorry. Sometimes the evil henchman and the helpless victim are often the same person. And that's mm-hmm. what I try to keep in mind a lot, especially with the soldiers in Russia and Ukraine right now. Like you're talking about like Buka and all these other atrocities going on, like the bombing of civilian centers and stuff like that. I always try to I always try to remember that line from Dan Carlin where like these these guys are doing horrible things but why, you know, like what circumstances would they be in if this had never started sort of thing? Would they be a middle school teacher? Yeah. Would they be a middle school teacher? Something like that. Instead of a camp guard at Auschwitz. Yeah. That's wild. And there's a difference between someone who volunteered to be a camp guard at the, in the Auschwitz or in Auschwitz versus I'm going to go fight on the Western front or Eastern front. Like even then, like, even if you're volunteering for certain duties, like I know if I was a Russian, if I was a German soldier in the second world war and I had the opportunity for a cushy guard status at a camp Mm. or being a soldier on the Eastern front where some crazy number, like seven out of eight German soldiers who died in the war died on the front. Yeah. 10 out of 10 times I'm going to pick the the guard, you know, and it's not because eight Jews or, whatever else it's just self-preservation yeah I, I try not to think a lot about that there's a book i yep. like called ordinary men yep yeah fantastic book and it essentially kind of brings you back home to realize um we're all the same the people that took that have done these horrible horrible actions throughout history they're made up of the same thing you and i are and we can sit here all day and say i would have done this or i wouldn't have done that and the reality is we, we just would have gone with the masses. Um, mm-hmm. We're not, the three of us are not any more special or brave or morally just than entire populations of throughout history, you know? I agree. That's a fantastic point. point, by the way. Yeah. And the statistics state, I mean, the vast majority of every, all of us would have been Nazis, right? Like statistically, that was the case. And it's a tough mean? question to you- ever ask. Well, like I'm saying, look at what happened to that country. The entire country flipped. You know, the whole thing did it. Oh, and you think that you would if we lived there at that time? Yeah, eighteen year old. You know, it's that question. Would I have been an abolitionist? And then you know, it's like, well, statistically speaking, no, you wouldn't have. You would have kept quiet, and most people did, and allowed that stuff to exist right under their noses. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I've spoken to quite a few SS veterans of the uh, German military, and the consensus was that not. 
very, very few of them joined the SS because they were promised they were going to get to kill Jews. It was they joined the SS for the exact same reasons I joined the Marine Corps is that the mm. uniforms were cool. The training was elite. They only took the best of the best. And it's like sure. if you're an alpha male type person, like that's where you want to go. Yeah, sure. So mm. I always try to keep that in mind where it's like, I'm, I'm yeah. no better than anyone else historically. If yeah. this wasn't a serious no, conversation, I, I would have taken a dig at the Marines there, but I'm going to stay above it um, <laughs> for now. Nick, are you working towards, do you have like, Sarah and I have been asked this recently and don't have a good answer. So maybe I'm going to try to steal an answer from you. Are you working towards something? Is this book like the thing you work towards each day? Is there something in the future you're, you envision this turning into? That's the difficult thing is I'm not exactly sure what I want B&B to be. Uh, originally, it was just something I did in my free time. So I wouldn't spam my own personal Facebook and Instagram. And now it's just kind of grown and grown and it's becoming more and more full-time. And so the books definitely help me continue to do this full-time. Um, what I would like to do at some point in the future, like my, my goal is to make enough money uh, through BNB to like hire a small team of guys. And then we actually go to these centers of conflict. So like what I would love to do is go to Nigeria and document the stories of the Nigerian soldiers fighting ISIS there or go to Iraq and speak to the Iraqi soldiers who fought against ISIS or, um, those are crazy Myanmar. fights that we have no yeah. idea. Dang, man. Yeah. yeah. Go to Myanmar and speak to the rebels down there. Libya. Or, what the heck's going on there? Mm -hmm. Or, and then afford to like travel to these different countries to interview veterans and stuff like that. Like before, COVID and the war in Ukraine, I was planning to go to Russia to speak to last World War II veterans there, you know, and it, that's what I would like to do is I'd like to do this full time. Um, the books would just be a byproduct of what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I just, I just love being a carrier pigeon. I guess that's what, what it is. You're doing an awesome job. This is so cool. I didn't, I knew generally what you're doing i followed you on instagram but I, I did not know some of these deep conversations you've had that's awesome yeah the, what you guys see on bnb is just scratching the surface of the conversations that i've i've had because I'm, I'm like half independent war journalist and then also like half therapist in a way because sure. a lot of these guys are confessing like the worst moments of their life to me and um it's a it's a heavy responsibility i take it very seriously um and because of that i take their anonymity very seriously too. I think one of the reasons that BNB has become um, so successful and people are so willing to talk to me is that I do allow anonymity. Um, like a lot of like major news sources and stuff, I've passed some great stories off to like some of the bigger MSN or M, uh, mainstream media platforms and they can't use them because they want first and last name and a location. And especially in Ukraine, first and last name and location will get you killed. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, and so I do allow people to submit stories anonymously uh, to me. I mean, I know who they are and where they are, but I, I redact some important information that could get them in trouble or get them killed. Like the, the Russian deserter in my book, you are in the one that's coming out. There is no information of what unit he was in or where he is now. Yeah, of course. Um, for each of the stories, actually, it's it shows a rough location of where they are, 
And then I've, for, for his story, I've just got parentheses. Wouldn't you like to know? <laughs> When's that new well, book I mean, coming out? Um, I am just waiting on one more story uh, from uh, Lieutenant Ken Ree, actually, the rock seal, the, the Korean Navy seal. He fought in Irpin. Uh, cool guy. I'm just waiting on one story from him and then it's ready. I'll just plug it in chronologically. I'll edit it for grammar and stuff like that. And then two days from now, it can be ready to publish. So do you self-publish it so you can kind of push it out on your own? Yep, I self-publish. And then also um, I'm pretty, I would, I would venture to say I'm pretty good friends with Adam Makos now. Uh, he and I worked together pretty closely to document uh, the soldiers in Azovstal. Uh, Adam Makos is best-selling author. He's got a movie coming out this uh fall called devotion it's about a korean war pilot um so i worked pretty closely with him and he gave me the advice to just self-publish until the war is over basically so that's what i'm gonna do again then self-publishing is fine with me i have complete control over everything yeah it's awesome time for that for sure and you know what i appreciate is you're telling it from a um I don't know if tact is the right word. It's just my opinion for one, but I don't like the glorification when it be- turns into glorification, you know, yeah. and you're, why you telling the rawness and just the, the, just the truth with the, without judgment part, just the stuff that actually happened that people were put in place that found, they found themselves. And yes, a lot of times it comes to self-preservation and us versus them. And that's just the reality on both sides. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it tells the story, which makes it a cautionary tale more than it does something that we should actually seek. So, I, I mean, it's, it's, well, I'm saying thank you <laughs> because <laughs> I, that's what I want to, you know, that's person. That's why I said, it's my opinion. I want to see more of that. I feel like for whatever reason, I feel like more on the glorification thing, which probably I was a fan of in the past. But now it's sort of me, you know, I have different feelings about that nowadays, you know. Yeah. Yeah. The the glorification of war is definitely one of the downfalls of our society. And uh, I just want to show it for what it is. You're doing a good job, man. Keep it up. And uh, please let us know when that book comes out. We'll, we'll let everybody know. But Nick, thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Thanks. Thank you for talking to me. Yeah, talk to for sure. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you like what we're doing, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. It helps us get in front of new listeners and provides feedback on how we're doing. We'll see you next time.